Let's go to God in prayer. And gracious God, we pray now that you would help us to understand this great text in this short letter, but still your word. We desire to know you. We desire to know ourselves even through this text. And so we pray that you would enlighten our minds to see ourselves and to see Christ more truly. In his name we pray. Amen. Second John, verses 1 through 3 and 12 and 13. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When you hear the word church, I wonder what comes first to your mind. And I wonder if what comes first to your mind is positive or neutral or a negative conception. When you hear the word church, is it people who call themselves Christians who just can't seem to get along, and so what they do is they end up splitting up? Is it a people who say that they love Jesus, but they gossip and backbite the ones that Jesus died for? Maybe to you, the word church is just another word for a bunch of hypocrites. Maybe the image is neutral. Perhaps you have in mind just a building, a place that some people go to. It's a place where people come together who have some things in common, and so they do some things together. They, they sing some songs. They might make some gift baskets for somebody. They, they might let their children play on the playground or talk to like-minded people, like a social club. Or maybe you have a high view of the church. You think of the church as a queen in a kingdom who knows righteousness and wisdom and who will set the world right soon enough. If there is to be any hope in the world, it will come from the church. Is that what you have in mind? Maybe you have all of that and more in mind because the church, variously understood, can give us mixed emotions, mixed thoughts, mixed conceptions. We understand the church as the people of God from Old Testament to New. Now, you might think all of those things. And you would be right. You would see hypocrites. You would see a place to assemble. You would see a a, a people so loved by God. And as we begin John's second letter, which is likely his cover letter in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we see God's view of the church. And surely our view of the church must then conform to God's view. God cannot unsee the faults of the church. Her foibles are many, Her sins offend his holiness and harm others in the church and even those outside the church. But through the opening lines of this very short letter, God shapes our thinking of the church. The church as a lady, as elect, as chosen. Church as one with children. And so a church as blessed by God. Because God has chosen the church for himself, he will insist on blessing her in the truth. 
Now, maybe the language of lady doesn't resonate with our hearts when we consider the word church, but the language is a favorite of God's, seen again here at the start of 2 John. In both the Old Testament and in the New, the Lord uses the language of a woman, of a lady, of a bride, to speak of the church. In Ezekiel 16, for instance, we read how God created a people out of a helpless, bloody babe. In her blood, the Lord said, live. When she was at the time for love, the Lord married her. The glorious groom covered her nakedness. He said all of his covenantal I do's, and he made her the royal queen that she never deserved to be. She proved her unworthiness, her ingratitude, time and again throughout her history. She took her divinely given beauty and prostituted herself. She even paid others for a good time. She took her divinely given children, and she placed them in the harmful hands of Pharaoh, in the burning hands of Moloch, and she rightly earned the name of whore for all of her abominations. Now, Ezekiel wasn't the only prophet to speak of Israel, the lady by name only. As a palpable prophetic object lesson, Hosea marries Gomer, who is called a wife of whoredom. Now, how would you like that as a nickname? Someone marked by unfaithfulness. In Gomer is the nation of Israel represented at that time perfectly. She is a wandering woman. She is an unfaithful woman. But God says, Hosea, go and love a woman who is loved by another man. What can we do but join God's words against Israel and direct them to ourselves? When he says, how sick is your heart? We say, how sick is our heart? It is all enough for the groom's righteous severing of that relationship forever. But using another prophet, the prophet Isaiah, Our divine groom remains firm to his covenant. In Isaiah 61.10, Isaiah rejoices greatly in the Lord. His soul exalts in his God, the groom. And why? The Lord has clothed his people with garments of salvation glory. He has covered the faithless bride with the robe of righteousness that is covered in Emmanuel's blood. The bride's sin does not get the last word. But the everlasting word of the Savior speaks. And we cannot look upon our Old Testament counterpart in judgment for her faithlessness without at the same time condemning ourselves. Both then and now, the church does not act very ladylike. Now does she? I think of 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. The Corinthians were not truly faithful to their bridegroom. And so what does Paul do in the spirit of Christ? Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But you are being deceived like Eve. They are falling head over heels heels for the, the false prophets and the super apostles. They were so impressed by the angel of light that they didn't notice the forked tongue. But we see in Revelation 19 and Revelation 21, but by the blood of lamb, the wedding meal will happen. 
Let us rejoice, the, the text says, for the eternal marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride of Christ has made herself ready. She is adorned for her husband. This adornment of glory will never fade away or lose its shine because her dress is indelibly marked by her husband's blood. And her groom makes her, his face to shine upon her always. And so she looks radiant as her attire is aglow with the blood of Christ. William Jenkin, the Puritan, says, The church comes out of Christ's side in the sleep of his death. As the Father pulled Eve out of Adam's side at creation, so now he brings the church into life out of his Son's glorious death. What is the church to do? But submit, to respond well. That's what the the bride is to do for the husband, as the husband in Ephesians 5 gives himself for her, as he nourishes her with the word, as he, as he washes her with the word. She is to submit. She is to receive that care well and to rejoice. And, and that relationship, Paul tells us, is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Although the church doesn't act very ladylike and is never fully faithful to her own marriage vows, this is no excuse for her to give herself to others. The bride is to make herself ready for her bridegroom's return. The lady, in thankful response to Christ's loving care, in response to Christ's self-sacrifice, in response to Christ's nourishment through the Word and the Spirit of God, she submits to her husband, who is her head in all things. She leaves the flesh of her father and the ways of her mother, and she clings to Christ, resting in the joy that her husband clings to her tighter than she does him. The church is lady. The church is woman, is the bride of Christ. But John also calls her elect here. Both the church that he is writing to and the church that he is writing from are called elect. They are called chosen. He says, the elder to the elect lady, in verse 1. And in verse 13, he says, the children of your elect sister. So here we have lady and sister, both elect, both chosen by God. Now, the church as chosen is a theme of John's in all of his writings. And if, if we were to read all of the texts of Scripture from his own writings about the grace of election, we would be here for a very long time. It doesn't matter if you read the Gospel of John or the 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. Election pervades those writings. It's a tune that he loves playing because he loves demonstrating the grace of God, the glory of God, the weakness of man. John 1.12 says that we were born not by man, we were born again not by blood, not by our own will, but by God from above. And John 15, 16, and 19, Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me. That's why we sang that this evening. You didn't choose me, but I chose you, and I chose you out of the world. In John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he is praying to the Father. He says, I am not praying for the world, but for those, Father, that you have given me, 
in Revelation 17, in the war between the world and the Lamb. The Lamb ends up on top. The Lamb ends up victorious. But He is not on top alone. He has with Him what are called the chosen and the faithful. The church that has Christ's whole heart. He has allowed us to be victorious with Him. As chosen, we receive the unending love of Christ. At the same time, we receive the relentless hatred of the world. At the same time, we receive the never-ceasing prayers of our great high priest, whoever pleads above. But there are those who are in the church externally, but not of the church, not of the true elect. Not all that are from Israel are of Israel, Paul tells us. And even in Jesus' day, he speaks of Judas in John 13, 18. He says, I am not speaking of you all. I know whom I have chosen. Judas was not ever part of the elect. It wasn't that he was truly saved and he lost his salvation. He was, from the very beginning, a son of perdition. He was a devil. In 1 John 2.19, John says, They went out from us, but they were not truly of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. The church perseveres because God preserves her. John Penry says to be a member of the true church is one thing, and to be a true member of the church is another thing. It is truly lamentable to be a ham, a a child of Noah, to be in the ark of safety but not know eternal security. It is tragic to be an Esau. The scripture says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It is sad to be an Ishmael, to be not a child of the promise, or to be a Saul, to be the first king in the monarchy of God's kingship, and to not know the real king in any saving way. It's a call for us to have faith in Christ that truly believe in Jesus Christ as our King, as our Head, as our Savior. Jesus chose the church because of His grace, not because of her goodness. Now, on the whole, we are a fairly romantic, touchy-feely nation. The nation's men have been well-trained by the romantic comedy and by the Disney picture of relationships. With this training comes the attitude that the woman, by virtue of being female, is the better sex. And as such, she is always the better half. She always completes the man. The man is always at her beck and call. The man is always seeking to please his beloved with roses and chocolates and chores and you name it. And all those things are great. And you can do those things. And you can give those things to your wife. But if you ever think that that is how Jesus relates to you, you got it all turned around. D.J. Collett's theology shall not do. They didn't believe in us. God did. He's some rapper I wouldn't recommend listening to. 
But that's a common, that was a popular phrase of his for a little while. God did not believe in us. He wasn't rooting for us, just waiting for us to, um, to get our act together and, and finally say, yes, you are ready to be chosen. You are ready to be wedded. No, we are not the better half in this relationship between Christ and the church. We have no half of goodness to give. We have no fourth of goodness. We have no eighth of goodness. We have no one-sixteenth of goodness. We have no one-thirty-second of goodness, and on and on and on. We have nothing to give. We're the ones who should be singing in the shower and dancing in the mirror because of his love. And at the same time, marvelously, he sings with joy over his bride's loudest praises with his own. You cannot outsing God. He has been eternally singing his love over us, his elect. Now notice in verse 1, it says, The elder to the elect lady and her children. So this is written not just to the lady, but also to her children. The elect lady has children. And these belong both to the lady and to her husband, Jesus. In Genesis 1, at creation, the triune God said, let us make man in our image. Having blessed man, he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Isaiah 9, 6, at redemption, the son, the the true and better Adam is called everlasting father. Not because the father and the son are one person, they are not. But because he, the seed of the woman, brings about a spiritual seed through his spirit. And we have our marching orders, don't we, in Matthew 28, 19, to baptize and to disciple the nations into the one name of God, the triune name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Dear ones, God's bride is not barren. Christ, the husband head, is most spiritually fruitful. We can all then, with Hannah, pray, not as one's drunk, but as one's filled with the Spirit. Our heart exalts in the Lord. We rejoice in your salvation. The barren has borne seven. With Mary, we can shout, our spirit magnifies the Lord. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. We are fruitful. The church is generational. This elect lady and her children are just one generation among many in a very long line of generations. Our God of ages past has been faithful to bear spiritual children, to have the offspring of Abraham. As numerous as the stars, they fly across the sky that is by the maker of heaven. As countless as the sand, we will never reach the limit or ever grow tired of counting how numerous they are. Our faithful groom cares for all of us, his children, and he supplies all of us by his Spirit, with his Spirit. And so one generation shall commend Christ's works to another generation until he returns, then with a new song in their hearts. And our hearts will sing for all eternity to one another about our husband, and to Christ for what he has done for us, for who he is in his glorious being. 
The church is fruitful. The church is generational. The, the church is communal as well. The children relate not only to Christ, but also to the other children of Christ. And this text is one of those passages that inspire the language of sister churches. Perhaps you've heard that before. The children of one church relate to the children of another church. And all these local churches are expressions of the one church, the one body of Christ. As members of the body need one another and are intimately connected to one another, so also the children of one elect lady do well to greet the children of another. Cyprian says, There is one church which, by the increase of its faithfulness, spreads into a multitude, just as there are many rays of the sun, but only one light, many branches in the tree, but one trunk, upheld by its tenacious roots. Dear ones, we are not like cousins who never care to see one another, but like those who at family reunions lament the time away, lament the lack of communication in the intervening time, and who make efforts to keep up with one another. And so I ask, how are our relations with our sister churches in this area, ones for whom I prayed just a little bit ago, Pastor Thomas Boer and Heritage Reformed Presbyterian Church, Pastor Ralph Johnston, Christ Church in Sanford, a PCA church plant, Pastor Andy Webb, the ARP Church, Providence Presbyterian. Dear ones, keep loving those here in this church, but reach out also to others. Reach out in love and fellowship. Seek opportunities to to join with them. And at a minimum, add them to your prayer list. Pray for them. Pray for God's work in them, through them. One man says, the communion of love is as wide as the communion of faith. Oh, big church. Plenty Plenty of room for love. And so finally, as John begins this short letter, he pronounces an apostolic blessing on the elect lady and her children. He says, grace and mercy and peace from God in truth and love. How can we come to any other conclusion than that the church is blessed beyond compare when we read these words? We are given grace. God's undeserved favor toward his children knows no end. We're blessed with mercy. God forever refuses to treat us as our sins and rebellion deserve. He's poured out upon us peace. For all eternity, because of Christ's peacemaking righteousness, we have not only the absence of strife, but the fullness of divine friendship. The Puritan George Swinnick says, If the church be a burning bush, it will not be consumed Because God is in it. He is ours, and we are His, forever loved and eternally blessed. So the next time you think of the church, think of that blessed and fruitful bride of Christ, chosen purely from the grace of the groom who purchased us with His blood. Let's pray. Our gracious God, We do not know how good we really have it. But we pray that we would grow in that understanding, in that appreciation. We would grow in our own affections for you. 
because of what you've done for us, because of who you are. We desire to know you more truly, more spiritually. And so we pray that you would transform us more and more into the image of Christ, who is our bridegroom. In his name we pray, amen. Let's turn our hymn.